because like my area is quite white I never know whether people are staring at me or avoiding me because I don't look white or because of COVID so I feel like it was quite difficult to differentiate. Hey and welcome to I'm Adopted Now What? A podcast where we talk about all things race, culture, and identity, one chat at a time. This is for people who want to get real, get deep, and figure out, now what? I'm your host, Liza. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the I'm Adopted Now What podcast. Uh, This week, I asked everyone to submit questions regarding their heritage countries. Now, this could mean birth trips, finding families, orphanage questions, anything relating to the country of your birth. And I got some great questions, so I'm going to jump right into the Q&A portion of this week's episode. Again, as always, I will get to as many questions as I can while trying to keep it under the 10-minute mark. So, question one. How can I embrace my heritage more? Now, this person had like a specific heritage, but I am going to generalize it to be all countries. Doesn't matter where your heritage country, where it is or what it is. Um... How can one embrace their heritage more? I think this is a great question. um, And I think even asking this question, you're in the right mindset and you're starting off uh, on the right foot. In terms of what you can actually do to get more familiar with that uh, culture, using, again, China as an example, uh, there are all kinds of clubs you can join Maybe start on Facebook or maybe just ask around in your neighborhood, in your community, or other Chinese people that you know. I know that you can getting into food is a really good avenue for learning about heritage culture. So, you know, going to like Chinatown if you have that in your neighborhood or maybe trying food from a new Chinese place for the first time. Obviously, of course, you know, you have the caveats of, well, is American food or American versions of these foods really going to be the same? And I get those concerns, but hey, you got to start somewhere. So yeah, just, you know, familiarize yourself with the cuisine of that country. Maybe do a little research and check on the internet about, you know, what kinds of traditions there are. Are there certain Um, outfits of dress that are traditional for certain occasions and maybe you could get into that you know I know that uh, in Chinese culture there is a specific formal uh, outfit or dress so you know it's all about how connected you want to be and how deep you want to go I think that's the other thing uh, you have to think about and also I would in terms of just trying to connect with your heritage country in general I would ask yourself you know okay what do you want to get out of this and what do you want how do you want this to affect your identity um if you you know identifying what you want and your end goal is obviously you know it's going to affect how you go about achieving that so you have to tell your brain what you actually want once you've figured that out then 
you're one step closer to creating a more permanent connection between you and whatever your uh, birth country may be. I hope that makes sense. I mean, I think kind of as a life uh, guiding principle in general, you should just know what you want. But especially in this, like know what you want to get out of it and, you know, what is your end goal? All right. Second question is, uh, should you get into your first culture earlier or later in life? Um, first culture, I'm assuming that means birth culture, birth culture, birth country. Um, I mean, obviously it's totally up to you, whatever, wherever you're at in your comfortability journey with, um, your adoption and your identity. I think personally that it's probably best to start earlier, to start getting into your culture earlier. You know, there it's, there's less stress, there's less emotional baggage attached, or at least you're, because your mind is still developing when you're younger, uh, it's going to be easier for you to make those connections and sustain those connections, whether they be through habits or activities, or extracurriculars, all that kind of stuff. It's going to stick more if you start earlier. But if you're not ready or if you're younger and you don't have the desire for that connection, then definitely wait until you do feel that way. Like I wouldn't uh, go seeking that stuff out if it's not right now in the moment important to you just because it's going to maybe feel like a burden. It could even turn you off to learning more about that country later on when you are older. I feel like that is a little bit of kind of what happened to me actually. So it all depends on what mental state you're in in your mind and how prepared and how ready you are to explore that culture. And obviously only you can know the answer to that. So figure out where you're at in terms of your comfortability level with all of this stuff and then go from there. That's at least what I would suggest. Or maybe you aren't sure and you just don't know where you're at with yourself which of course is totally fine and I'm sure you're not the only one. So maybe find a friend or someone you can trust or someone who shares the same heritage country as you. I mean, they don't have to be adopted. Like if they're not, that actually might be kind of like a good soft entry uh, into like that culture more. If you have a friend and their family is from that, is from that uh, country and has that culture already. But either way, maybe do it with a friend and that way you know that you have support and someone has your back in case you do have mixed emotions that come up from learning about uh, your heritage culture. So, you know, check in with yourself, figure out where you're at, and if you're not sure, maybe get a buddy and do it with a friend and that way it doesn't have to be so daunting and intimidating um, in the first place and you can just enjoy it. Okay, and the third and possibly last question for this segment this week is how do I feel more comfortable and like I quote unquote fit in in my birth country when other people from that country don't make me feel welcome? Okay, now this is actually something that I hear a lot from adoptees that essentially uh they're ready to connect more with their birth country and that culture and they're they want to but oh, oh and then they do it and they go and they try and they kind of 
are at an impasse because the people from that country aren't really welcoming to them or accepting of them as one of, you know, I don't know, quote unquote, their own. Uh, and I and this can happen both in the birth country, but also in whatever country you ended up growing up in and living in. Uh, I hear it a lot both ways. So what I have to say about this is, well, first of all, I hear you and that sucks. That's a really you know, crappy situation to be in, uh, especially because I feel like adoptees deal with a lot of unwantedness and baggage from being unwanted uh, in the first place. So, so that's sort of the nature of being adopted. So what I would suggest uh, is maybe if you're looking to get into that culture more or even visit your her- your birth country, go with a group you know, whether it's your friends or your family or a lot of the time you can actually find like organizations that plan trips to different countries and they'll have a lot of different birth, like, you know, sorry, a lot of different families uh, go in one giant group together. And that way, even if you are experiencing a little bit of, you know, ostracization from uh, the people who live in your birth country then you don't have to go through it alone you have a support system built in the other thing I would say is you know I think it's important to really put in the work in yourself before you do something like this before you really take the leap and go to that country or truly try and immerse yourself in that culture Uh, with people from that country. I think it's important that you build a strong foundation in yourself where if that happens, maybe you're excluded from something or maybe someone's rude to you because they don't accept you as one of their own or, you know, whatever it may be. It would be helpful, I feel like, to be in a mental place where you can say, okay, this happened and it does feel bad but I know it's not my fault and I know it's nothing because of me and it's nothing that's wrong with me or something that I did wrong having that internal monologue that positive self-speak can really go a long way in terms of boosting your confidence but also like softening the blow that being rejected like that can sometimes make us feel so I definitely would you know do your research Uh, And if you can, go with a group. But if you can't, and if you're going by yourself or you're going with a small group of people, um, then, you know, just make sure that you're prepared emotionally and mentally for rejection and be in a solid place in your mind where you can say with confidence to yourself, you can tell yourself, I know that's not because of me. And I think that goes a long way because it really isn't. Like if you think about it, this per- the person who's rejecting you knows nothing about you they're making judgments based on how you look just like everybody else just like all the other experiences all of us adoptees have had too so you know in that sense it's really nothing like you uh haven't dealt with before and just you know trust in yourself know that you're strong and that it's not a reflection on you and that this is complicated and there are a lot of different dynamics at play And, you know, just try to come from a place of understanding. And the other thing I would suggest, especially if you're going to visit this country, is, you know, make sure that you have 
planned something or set something up for yourself there that you know is going to make you feel good. So whether that's, you know, trying a new food or maybe uh, you've heard of this really cool restaurant that you want to go to or you want to like experience, um, I don't know, like a, a tea ceremony or something if that's if that happens in your heritage country. Set Set like something up for yourself that you can look forward to and have, you know, positive associations with. So even if worst case scenario, it is going badly and you are feeling rejected and you're having trouble um, pulling yourself into a more positive mindset, you already have anticipated that and have something in your itinerary or your schedule that will uplift you and help shift you into a positive headspace. And I think that will also help too. Um because you'll know that you'll have something good to look forward to that you're excited about. So that is my advice on uh, going to your heritage country and trying to integrate yourself into the people who live there. So that is it for today's Q&A portion. Sorry if I was a little scatterbrained today, but it's been busy and I feel like I might have been talking faster than usual. But the good thing about the podcast is you can rewind. So if you miss anything, then feel free to do that. As usual, I really hope you liked today's episode and also hope you stick around all the way to the end where you can hear my breakdown of the conversation and a little psychological analysis of some of the stuff that we talked about. Okay, here's the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast this week. Thanks for joining me uh, today for today's episode. I have Anna with me, who is currently in Sweden right now studying biology, and Zoe, who is in the south of London at the moment, studying uh, the classics like Greek mythology and things like that. They both met at the University of Scotland in Scotland. And welcome both of you to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Uh, now, I like to ask all my guests on the show to kind of get things going. Uh, why are you both here? Why do you find talking about adoption important to you? Um, or what inspired you to come on the podcast? And whoever wants to start can go first. Um, I'll start. Uh, well, I guess like I really love talking about adoption just because I feel like it's a really big part of like who I am and I've met like I've always kind of grown up knowing other adoptees mm. but they didn't really want to talk about it that much and so it's more been when I've like gone to uni and met sort of other adoptees who want to talk about it mm -hmm. that I found it's really nice to just like have conversations and sort of relate to each other's experiences definitely yeah, I agree with Zoe, but for me, it's also, also been that I grew up in a very small city, uh, so I wasn't surrounded by a lot of adoptees, and I felt alone at times, so I feel a podcast, but also other, like, social media groups are a very great way to, like, share experiences and connect with each other, and, like, find some type of support group. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I think something that has been the most surprising thing for me is just how wide their the network of adoptees is um, because I had I just wasn't tapped into it and I had no idea so I totally relate to that Zoe you mentioned that you have you do have you know a pretty wide circle of other adoptees that you know but they haven't really been open to talking about it in the past how did you come to have that 
uh, like group of adopt of adoptees around you? And what do you think is like the difference between you who really wants to talk about it and is motivated to talk about it? And then, you know, versus your friends or other people in that group who aren't so open? Well, I've kind of like, we. I was kind of in a sort of adoption group. So when my mom adopted me, she met like other people who also adopted around similar time or after her. Mm-hmm. And so it was really nice for her to obviously talk to other parents who'd adopted from China. Mm-hmm. And then we obviously like naturally became friends with each other. And we'd have like sort of monthly get togethers where we'd like okay. hang out. And um but I think a lot of, most of them are either a bit younger than me or some of them a bit older. Mm. But I just think that a lot of them, they haven't really been the sort of people who wanted to really talk about it when we were together. And I'm the only one who really like kind of wanted to get more involved in the sort of adoptee community and meet other people outside our group. Mm. Mm-hmm. And do you think that's just because of like the way that your personality is or... Uh, is it something about the way that your parents raised you in in an environment where being curious about that kind of stuff was encouraged and you know you talked about it a lot with your family I'm just trying to like figure out where your motivation to talk about it comes from yeah I definitely think my family had a big impact on it because my mom has always been like you can talk about it whenever you want to and you know I'm very open to telling you anything And she kind of encouraged me to speak about it. But Mm. I've also just been very interested personally since Mm -hmm. I was very young. Um, Whereas like other people in my group didn't, weren't really that interested. And even though some of their parents would talk about it with them and some of them not so much, I think it just came down to them, like themselves, whether they wanted to actually mention it. it. So Anna, you mentioned that you grew up in a really small town, kind of had a little bit of the opposite experience as Zoe, where you didn't have an adoption group so much. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you talk about what that was like for you and growing up? Was it super lonely or did you feel, I don't know, like an outsider? I yeah. guess I'm asking for you to just describe. Yeah, I, w- I would I would say that I felt very different, not only that I was adopted, but I was also one of few like BAME students at my school. So I I almost like wanted to like somehow uh, hide that I was adopted. I wanted Mm. to be like the other one. So I tried to like fit in. Mm -hmm. So in contrast to Zoe, I didn't really like talking about that I was adopted Mm -hmm. Uh, growing up. It was more when I got older and met other people of color and other adoptees that I started to get more like interested in the subject got it and um what was your uh upbringing like with your parents in terms of did you as a family talk about your adoption a lot or not so much so I was always allowed to like ask questions and stuff but it was more me who didn't want to ask them like Mm -hmm. I didn't want to think about that I was adopted when I was younger Mm -hmm. got it yeah uh, have you spent a lot of time thinking about why that might be? Yeah, for me, I feel it was more like an identity thing mm-hmm. uh, because like my dad is from Sweden and my mom is from Finland. So mm-hmm. it's a very like multicultural family in that way. So I felt like uh, I just didn't want to talk about it. I don't know why. 
probably a bit of it was also because of like abandonment issues but also I wasn't really surrounded by other people yeah from other cultures and that were adopted as well yeah got it so I think it's interesting that you know between the two of you there are like very different upbringings I think that is great in terms of you being friends but also kind of be illustrating the idea that we all have this like adoption in common but our lives can look totally different so can you can both of you kind of talk a little bit more about your family dynamics are there siblings you know how do you feel in terms of being an interracial family where at least for Anna it seems like your parents are white and you're not and then Zoe I don't know so much about your family makeup so would you mind just like sharing a few details about that uh, yeah, so for me, it's just my mum is a single parent, mm-hmm. so she adopted um, me first, and then my sister, who's three years younger, and we're both from China. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not from the same orphanage, we're mm-hmm. from different orphanages, but um, I mean, it's been, I feel like it's been interesting because, um, like, a lot of the time, because my mom is a single parent, it mm-hmm. often, when you get little sort of children who are like, oh you know like where's your dad do you have a dad and you kind of that often becomes like a quite like a sort of question that you have to start talking about adoption right definitely so yeah and um like my sister and I get along fairly well we have have like ups and downs but then that's just siblings Mm -hmm. but uh she's not that into talking about adoption Mm -hmm. but it has been really nice like having someone who's also adopted you know who's your sister so yeah so we do know where each other is sort of coming from Mm. even if we might not talk about it that much Mm -hmm. definitely awesome and what about you Anna Uh, so I have a mom and a dad and then a sister who's also adopted as well and we're Mm. not from the same area yeah and me and my sister we we like never really talk about being Mm. adopted either so I feel like that could also be a reason Mm. for why Mm. I haven't talked about it before Mm-hmm. And where are you? What country were you adopted from? Uh, China as well. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Uh, so what do you What do you both say? I mean, Zoe, you kind of uh, brought this up when people ask about your parental situation. Do you have a dad and things like that? And I'm sure that both of you have experienced, you know, the question of basically like, oh, why are you the way that you are? And you either are forced to bring up your adoption because that's the only context in which people will understand or I don't know I find those conversations to be very messy and I'm always curious to know how other adoptees handle kind of introducing themselves um, to Mm -hmm. like strangers or new people for the first time like how do you go about that? Well for me when I was younger um, sometimes if children would ask like oh why don't you have a dad or those sort of questions then I would tell them I'm adopted mm-hmm. but often most of the time like if they kind of ask more subtle questions like um do you have a dad or something I'd just be like no I don't and hope that they just leave it at that mm-hmm. but I think nowadays that I'm sort of like I get more used to people asking me mm-hmm. um I'm just get I just go straight to the point because I just find that it's so much easier than then having to kind of work out my family situation right so, yeah and it's also like I mean, I don't know if I make it awkward by saying that, but I feel like it's definitely easier 
because then they're like oh so your family from China mm-hmm. or like how long have you been living in the UK or like all these sort of questions and you just kind of have to get straight to the point yeah it, I have never lived in England although my dad my dad was from there but uh is it a normal like normalized part of the culture to ask people about their backgrounds and like oh you know where are you from and why do you I don't know not have an accent or something like that like is it considered rude or do people just ask that all all the time I think initially people are just being polite and being Mm. like oh where are you from but I never really know if they're asking like where I live or like if they're thinking like oh she's clearly not white so like which country is she from Mm -hmm. so sometimes I'm not really sure how to answer that question Mm -hmm. and so it can sound more personal than it is maybe Mm -hmm. but also if I feel like not so much with younger people but definitely like with teachers or older people um if they sometimes don't really like the answer that they get so if you're like oh well I live like sort of south of England Mm -hmm. they're like okay but where are you really from or where are your parents from Mm -hmm. and it's like they're just like pushing for an answer that kind of makes sense yeah to how they kind of see you yeah. so in the end it's kind of just easier to just tell them kind of outright yeah I'm adopted from China. yeah yeah and then you can just kind of see all the I feel like I I take the same approach I usually just say oh well I'm adopted so you know my mom's from here my dad's from here um and I can just see like any questions they had they just they're like oh okay, never mind about all those questions because you basically just cut straight to the point. Uh, and Anna, do you take the same approach as well or do you kind of handle that situation differently? No, I, I usually do the same because I don't want to have the like weird conversation. Yeah. Being, yes, I'm from Sweden. And then you're like, eh, no, you're not. <laughs> so I usually <laughs> said, say that I'm from Sweden, but I was adopted from China to like cut the conversation short. Right. Um, and in... In Sweden or in Finland, I don't know if you spend a lot of time visiting like your sides of the family there or anything, but Mm -hmm. is it all, is it, again, do people, do you notice that people talk about like your background and people's cultures and stuff on like in general really frequently, or it's kind of something that isn't talked about at all? I would say it's like less talked about than talked about, Mm. but then because Sweden and Finland both are like, it's there are a lot of like it's very white in general right so when they see me they get like interested and they start to ask questions about China and I'm like I don't know anything yeah <laughs> yeah got it and so speaking of China because all three of us are adopted from there um how, where do you guys how do you feel about like being Chinese um do you like do you feel a strong connection to China, Chinese culture, being Chinese, uh, or do you have, do you lean more towards having trouble feeling connected? I think for me, um, because I think Anna and I are quite similar in that we grew up in quite white areas. Yeah. That um, I often, when I was younger, forgot that I was sort of different from everyone else, which in a way I guess is nice because then you can feel like you're like everyone. But yeah. at the same time, I would sometimes then just be reminded that I'm not. And um, definitely when I was younger, I didn't really embrace like sort of Chinese culture mm-hmm. or anything. Like I did learn Mandarin when I was younger, but I wasn't really that interested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, also just because I didn't really like languages that much. <laughs> but uh, 
like definitely as I grew up I became more and more interested in China the culture and everything and it's not although like my mom didn't encourage it it was more just that I think not really being surrounded by sort of I guess Chinese like friends or like having just like a lot of sort of white children around you Mm -hmm. makes you kind of almost sort of like forget that there's like people like you or people of different races as well Mm -hmm. it's very like it's very much like living in a sort of bubble yeah uh and Anna how how about you in your connection where are you at in terms of your connection to China or Chinese culture yeah so I agree with Zoe I usually felt I like felt more white at times so I had especially when I was younger I had trouble like connecting with the China and Chinese culture Mm -hmm. I almost like felt fake when I tried to like engage in the Chinese culture because I Mm -hmm. felt more Swedish Mm -hmm. than I actually yeah felt more Swedish and but now when I'm grown older I like try to read more about it Mm -hmm. and engage more in it nice got it okay so yeah and that's and you also grew up as you said Sweden and Finland are both pretty white countries and so you grew up mostly in a in yeah. in a white environment too right yeah got it yeah i feel like that's a common thing i've noticed with adoptees who grow up in predominantly not just white families but white neighborhoods as well um is there definitely seems to be this like oh i basically forgot that I don't look how I feel in a lot of ways because especially when you're younger you're not you know doing all this advanced psychological processing and stuff um looking back (laughs) on kind of like your upbringing in your childhood when you were a kid um do either of you wish that you had been more interested or had found something that inspired more interest than you had because I feel like for I'm asking that because for me now I am I feel like I'm just starting to become curious in terms of Chinese culture uh but there are others who I've interviewed where they studied it in college and they studied it in undergrad and they you know went to like heritage summer camps where they learned about their culture and all that stuff and I never did any of that and maybe it's because I don't know, maybe I was like a generation too old before that kind of stuff became popular. Uh, But I, looking back, regret not doing more of that kind of stuff. And so I'm just wondering if how you feel about it. Um, I definitely think it would have been nice to have done more because I did know people who went to like Chinese Saturday school Mm -hmm. and stuff. And that seemed to be a good way for them to either learn Mandarin or like learn more about their culture and stuff but I never really did those sort of things Mm. um but I've definitely always been interested in adoption um Mm. if not China okay that's cool that's awesome and how about you Anna for me I don't really regret not doing those things because I feel like it's like my journey Mm. and now when I get older it's like my time to like be more interested in it now Mm -hmm. kind of thing Mm -hmm. uh would either of you ever can either of you imagine yourselves visiting China and and you know doing the whole orphanage 
trip where you go and you see, you know, your orphanage and the town where you were found and all of that stuff? Or are you not interested in that so much? Um, I did that trip when I was about oh, you did. 14, I oh, think. Oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah, no, my sister and I, and then my mom, we went out and we visited our orphanages. Mm-hmm. My orphanage is now an old people's home. So that was interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> But like, it was just very weird to kind of see sort of the area. And I feel like it was quite like a culture shock for me because Mm. I was quite young and like, I had no idea really. I didn't really remember when I went, we went and adopted my sister. So I didn't remember China that much. Right. But I really would love to go back again. Not like if even even if I don't really necessarily see my orphanage yeah. or something, I would just like to go and sort of see more of the country. Yeah. Do you if you were to do that, would you feel like, oh, I'm, I'm you know like I'm just any other tourist and I want to see like the Great Wall and all that kind of stuff, or would you feel like it was more of your learning about your culture or? you're learning about the culture that you could have been a part of had you not been adopted or anything like that? I'm not really sure because when I went the first time, like we did some touristy things mm-hmm. and you just kind of feel like any tourist. Like right. there were also like Chinese people who are technically being tourists. Yeah. Because they might've come from different areas. Um, but maybe now that I'm more like interested in it, I would like maybe see it as more of a sort of immersing myself into my own sort of culture. Mm-hmm so yeah yeah I also did that trip when I was around 12 I think wow and I I feel like I was a bit too young doing it then because I didn't really understand Mm -hmm. like what was going on so I feel like I would love to do that trip again but now a bit older yeah definitely yeah and and, uh, then in the same way as like Zoe uh, there and see more things and like modern China Mm -hmm. yeah that's for sure. That is so cool. Man, you both have done that like way earlier than I would have thought. That's that's really cool. Okay, so moving more into like current day, uh, present day, how have you both been affected by COVID in terms of, you know, looking Asian and having, and there being a lot of Asian prejudice because of COVID? Um, I obviously, again, don't know what it's like in England or in Sweden, so I'm definitely interested to hear about that. Um, well, I kind of live like in the middle of nowhere. So, oh. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it'd be any worse if I was like more like in London or mm-hmm. more kind of a city. Um, but and also like during the first lockdown, I didn't really go out because my family were very much like we're going to stay at home mm-hmm. and not risk getting COVID. Mm-hmm. Um but like, because like my area is quite white, I never know whether people are staring at me or avoiding me because I don't look white or because of COVID. Yeah. So I feel like it was quite difficult to sort of differentiate between mm-hmm. the two. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but um, I think it's like, I think it was more like during the sort of like COVID period that I've definitely become more involved in the adoptee community and stuff. Oh yeah. So yeah, which has been really, really lovely. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Just your growing interest in adoption or something else? Yeah, I think that, but also just like because I was at home a lot and everything was online. And like, although I obviously like had uni work to do and stuff, mm-hmm. it's also been like why I was like, like I could try and do some more volunteering or yeah, like sort of 
start becoming more involved in things mm-hmm. and so I was you know like I just started sort of getting in contact with people and being like I want to help out that's awesome I love that uh Anna how about you have you what is your experience as an Asian person in COVID been like in Sweden I haven't really noticed anything either except on like online on TikTok when people have made jokes Mm. about like Asian people and COVID and like taking distance Mm -hmm. but I haven't like experienced it in person that's good the racism is worse in America which is no surprise to me um in the future or I guess if you're looking to the future um do you see yourself eventually like wanting to reach out to your birth family or try and find them and start that whole I feel like it's a whole entire separate journey in and of being adopted already um and maybe you're some of you are in touch already with your birth family or something uh but what are your thoughts on that you know whole thing in general um well I've been trying to do sort of a birth parent search at the moment Mm -hmm. um like I've done sort of DNA tests and stuff Mm -hmm. and I think we did like do a sort of search thing through a company or something Mm -hmm. but I think one person, one family came forward, but it wasn't like a match or anything. Oh, I see. But I think like my mom is always sending me things about people who like groups who are looking because I think it's better to do it in a group. Oh, yeah. Uh But it just seems quite hard to find birth parents from what like I've read and about people's experiences. And like hiring a searcher and stuff can be quite difficult Mm -hmm. because you really have to that you trust yeah it can be expensive and I know I feel like like Chinese adoptees have the hardest time um with the whole birth family search situation just because the way that China or the the lack of way that China kept adoption records when comparatively to say Japan or Korea for example um like the Japanese adoptees and Korean adoptees that I've talked to um, more of them say like oh they know all these different things about their their birth parent history uh, or the situation around their adoption whereas most Chinese adoptees I feel like when I ask about information they're like well I don't really know anything except like a couple bits of information and there's no way to track them because there wasn't any system in place Um, yeah that's true. I think a lot of birth parents as well don't always want to come forward. So it can mm-hmm. be quite difficult. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I mean, I've met my foster mother, but oh. I haven't had any luck in finding my birth family. Mm. So you were in a foster, with a foster family be- between the orphanage and your adoption? Yes. Okay. I was. She was just one woman and I think she fostered two people, which was mm. me and another girl. Got it. Do you remember like anything from that time or were you too little? Not really. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. And Anna, how do you, how are you, what are you, how are you thinking about the whole like yeah. search, search for your birth family thing? Yeah, I haven't started yet, but that is something I would like love to do because I really want to yeah. see like how my parents look like. Uh-huh. But I also feel like one of the reasons I haven't really started is because it feels impossible Right. Because like this are like all the everything that surrounds adoption in China and like the one child's policy. Yeah. 
yeah it seems very taboo over there to like speak about um yeah exactly yeah uh why are you why are you uh most interested in like seeing what they look like yeah because I feel like because both of my parents are white and like all of my relatives like none of them are my like blood relatives uh-huh. so I would like love to see someone that looks like me and like where all my features came from yeah Yep, definitely. I, that's that's one of the more common uh, responses. Even when I'm, you know, researching things and looking things up online, a lot of what adoptees say is, "Well, I want to know like where I got my eyes from and like where I got my like lips from and all that stuff." I want to know that as well. Um, like, I feel almost like if I could have like pictures of them, but then not have to actually like get to know them or talk to them at all, at all for me that might be yeah. ideal um I mean I, it makes sense because everybody like all you know all my friends are like oh you know I can totally see like if you look at baby pictures of your friends you're like oh you look just like your mom or like I yeah, see exactly. you know and then like we can't do that yeah you can't really <laughs> do that yeah um do you feel do you both of you experience that or Anna maybe you do uh in terms of like birthdays and and stuff too because I know that uh like like astrology and like what your sign is and all that stuff uh is popular like with my friends and everything and I'm always like well like damn I wish I knew a hundred percent for sure when my birthday was so then I could know and participate is that do you guys have that too yeah definitely because I feel like um I mean, I'm quite happy with when my birthday is, but sometimes I wonder, like, am I younger? Am I older? Yeah. So, like, it would be nice to know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And a lot of the, like, astrology things, people are like, oh, what was the exact time you were born? Because that means you have, like, rising or mm-hmm. something. And I can't really do that because I have no clue. Mm-hmm. And the location, I think, makes a difference as well. And I'm like, well, I yeah. don't know that either. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay awesome so we're getting to the end of our time so I'm just gonna do ask you a couple rapid fire questions if that's okay Uh, and Zoe we'll start with you so what is one piece of advice you could tell like future generations of adoptees or your younger self as an adoptee about the process of like figuring out who you are what would your one piece of advice be I would definitely say find other adoptees Mm -hmm. and just talk about it as much as possible because I feel that like sort of learning who you are as part of it is like talking about it with other people Mm -hmm. and people like you and I think it's really important. Mm. Um, What is one thing that you would say to uh, parents who are considering adoption? Probably that I mean it's not easy I feel Mm -hmm. like I personally obviously don't know because I'm not a parent Mm -hmm. but I can imagine that it's quite difficult and to just kind of like read up a lot about it and maybe go to sort of classes where people talk about adoption Mm -hmm. and just like learn as much as possible about what your sort of child you're adopting is going through and Mm -hmm. how to help them Mm -hmm. and the last question is uh if you, there was like one thing that you wish people in general, society 
knew or and understood about what it's like to be an adoptee or what it's like to be adopted? What's one thing that you wish everybody like understood and, and knew? I think the fact that we do think about it, because I think a lot of people just, you sort of tell them and they're like, okay, cool. And like, they don't really realize that a lot of like your behavior or a lot of like issues you might have stem from adoption. Mm. And it's not just as simple as you are adopted. There's mm-hmm. more to it. Got it. Um, Anna, same rapid fire questions to you. Uh, starting off with what is like one piece of advice you would give either your younger self or future generations of adoptees about uh, figuring out who you are and finding your identity? Yeah, I would say I agree with Zoe that you should like try to surround yourself with adoptees, but also read about it a lot and engage in the culture and not be afraid to do it. Like you are allowed to (laughs) engage in the culture you're from, but also that it comes with time and it gets better with time, I would say. Mm, Yeah, definitely. I feel like when you're, when you're younger and you're like in the thick of it and just Mm -hmm. everything seems like unknown, just, you know, have faith that like you'll figure it out and the better, the more you like reach out, the more, the faster clarity will probably come to you Mm -hmm. as well. Um, Okay, so the second question is, what is one thing you would tell people who are a couple or parents who are considering adopting? Yeah, I would say, like, read about it a lot, especially if you're doing an interracial adoption, Mm -hmm. because if you are a white parent adopting a Chinese kid, that kid will experience things that you as a white parent cannot really understand. Yeah. What is one thing that you wish society in general knew about what it's like to be adopted and to be an adoptee? I would say that it affects you quite a lot as an adult. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Would, can you say more about that? Yeah, especially about like, like identity, but I know a lot of adoptees, they experience a lot of trauma surrounding their adoption mm-hmm. and that it's it's a big part of who we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. It's a big part of who we are. That's also, I think, why it's great to have, like, podcasts and things like this for people to just, like, talk about being adopted and, like, sort of share their experiences as well. Yeah, well, thank you for saying that. And thank you both so much for being here, Anna and Zoe. It was so lovely to have you on. Literally, it's just been really great. I mean, like, Anna and I started, like, our own sort of Instagram for, like, adoptees to sort of share things. Yeah. And so it's really been lovely to see other accounts doing all sorts of different things, either sort of similar sort of way or like doing podcasts like you. Yeah. So yeah. So it's been a really nice experience. That's awesome. Yeah. I that's how we got in touch. I found your Instagram page and we just started a conversation mm-hmm. from there. Uh so for the audience, for people who want to go look at Zoe and Anna's page, you can do that. Their handle is at voices of adoption. At voices, under- at voices of adoption underscore. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Perfect. Okay. And I will also have that uh, linked in the show notes to this episode as well. So you can click on it easily and find their account and all of their amazing adoption support content. Uh, so again, thank you for our guests. Thanks to being here. Yeah, and thank-, thank you so much. Yes, of course. Yeah. Thank uh, you for having us. It's been great. It was such a pleasure to get to know both of you girls. And thank you all for listening, the audience. As usual, we will be back next week. 
Okay, that is a wrap on my conversation with Anna and Zoe. I hope you all enjoyed it. I really love talking to them and getting to know them. It's always really cool hearing other people's perspectives, especially from different countries, different continents. Um, I feel like that always, you know, adds a nice variety to the show as well. So a big thanks again to both of those girls for jumping on and just willing to get so personal with me and all of you. For today's end segment, I wanted to touch on this idea uh, that trauma is a big part of who we as adoptees are and trauma in general. Just because we did spend some time talking about it uh, on today's episode and I feel like that's a common theme across the board when it comes to talking with adoptees about their adoption stories is, you know, they're always there's always an early life trauma of some kind or another. It's just sort of unfortunately the nature of adoption. There's traditionally usually an abandonment or a surrendering beforehand, and then there's an adoption. So there are actually two early traumatic life events that almost all adoptees go through. There's also uh, the foster system, which is a whole different set and style of uh, early life events. Sometimes they're traumatic, sometimes they're not. Uh, I guess that depends on the specific foster situation. But for the most part, m- almost all adoptees do go through at least one early life trauma situation in their lives. So I wanted to get into it just a bit and talk about it. So I guess we'll start with just sort of the basics. Uh, There are three main parts in your brain that are or can be affected by trauma. You have the amygdala, the hippocampus, and the prefrontal cortex. Now, don't worry. I am really not good at talking about this. In fact, this was actually my least uh, successful course in college. So just bear with me. I'm going to go through the basics just so you can follow along with what I'm talking about. But we won't get all into the brain science and all of that. Um, So the amygdala is responsible for your emotions, your survival instinct, and also it is responsible for detecting fear. Then you have your hippocampus, which is basically all of your memory recall, uh, and that can mean a few different things. Traditionally, uh, for the hippocampus, you either have like really vivid, specific memories or you have trouble with recalling those memories and there are more holes and gaps in your hippocampus. Then we have your prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for regulating your emotion. So basically what happens is your amygdala, where our emotions live, will send like a message down to your prefrontal cortex and your prefrontal cortex will then react and regulate the emotion and basically act as the rational counterpart to an overly emotional amygdala which is sort of a funny way to put it but again we're sticking with the basics here so we will just leave it at that uh, at that simplified version for the sake of this episode so these are the three main sections Uh, of your brain that are affected by trauma. And I would say specifically the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex because those are the two primary uh, regions of your brain that have to do with emotion. Of course, memory call on your hippocampus is also affected uh, by early life trauma especially, but 
we're going to focus on the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. Now, the reason I'm talking about the brain and regions of the brain and how trauma can affect uh, emotions on a cranial level is because obviously this podcast is about storytelling and instead of focusing on the early life trauma, I want to spend this portion focusing on how do we rewrite that narrative? How can we change that story, that early life trauma in our own minds to become something that helps us and bolsters us to become who we want to be, which is definitely, at least I would assume, not somebody, uh, you know, that is unable to escape the effects that their early life trauma has had on their lives. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about the power of storytelling and how it can directly affect our emotional areas of our brains, because that's basically what we do here on this show. I guess I should start by saying that stories in general help us deal with trauma. Uh, They can be cathartic, and this doesn't necessarily have to be your own personal story. If you've ever watched a TV or a movie or read read a good book, then you will know the experience of having that book end or that movie or TV show end, and you feel like you've been emotionally invested, like you have been in that plot, in that story, with those characters, um, essentially the whole time, at least if it's a good movie, show, or book. Now, so that's a perfect example of how storytelling as a whole can help us deal with trauma and be cathartic and help us practice empathy because we are putting ourselves in the shoes of other people who maybe we wouldn't normally do. Uh, Maybe we wouldn't normally consider what it well, you know, what life is like or a certain situation is like from, you know, this person's perspective had we not read it in a book. So why do we feel emotionally connected when we are experiencing a good story? It's because that's what storytelling allows us to experience. There was actually a study conducted by Raymond Marr, who teaches psychology at York University in Toronto, And his study was based when something like this. He had two groups. He had group A read a really good book and group B didn't read anything at all. Then he took pictures of both group A and group B uh, and showed those pictures to a third group, C, who were, I guess, quote unquote, the evaluators. Except the only thing the evaluators could see were the eyes of all of those pictures of everyone in the uh, experiment. And what he found, well, okay, so he asked group C, the evaluators, to look at each set of eyes and just say what they thought that person was feeling, experiencing, um, emotional, like what emotions they were having, or what, you know, whatever their best guess was. And what he found was that the group who had read a good book just beforehand were more likely to be described as happy, engaged, intrigued, curious, um, excited, energized, and you know other qualities like that. And what that indicated to Raymond Marr, the conductor of the experiment, was that the act of engaging in a story, whether it's your own or someone else's, and whether it's nonfiction or fiction, that 
is a way to energize and light up the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex where our emotional you know our emotional processing powerhouses in our brains and this is especially key for adoptees who have such early life trauma because that can affect the size and development of your amygdala and your prefrontal cortex which means it's great when you can engage in storytelling and have those regions of your brain light up, reactivated. Um, A lot of times in therapy that you have emotions and experiences locked away so tightly in there, as well as in the hippocampus, bringing back the memory recall piece that is affected by early uh, childhood trauma. You have so much locked away deep down in there that storytelling can really be a good avenue and cathartic avenue to help release and loosen up some of those emotions and experiences and memories that may be locked away. So now that we've established storytelling and how it can impact uh, our brains and how early childhood trauma can impact the same regions of our brains, Let's think about this for a sec. If we use, if we can use storytelling to explore uh, emotions, our own emotions, our own traumas, our own experiences on top of other people's, can we use the same storytelling to heal said traumas, emotions, and experiences? Here is where I have to say that this is actually not my original question. Uh, Hidden Brain did an episode about uh, storytelling a while back, I think several months ago. And this is a question from that episode that stuck with me all this time later. So it's not my question. Uh, It's Shankar Vedantam's question. But again, it's if we can use storytelling to explore trauma, emotion, and experiences, can we use it to heal those things as well? The reason that Shankar asks this in his episode is because he's realizing as he learns more about the power of storytelling that we tend to react to the content of the story instead of asking about the origins of the story. So in the context of adoption and being an adoptee, he's basically saying that we tend to worry about um, what the story says about us instead of understanding that our reaction is just an imperfect way that our minds are responding to the trauma that we have experienced. I wanted to include that little uh, tidbit from Shankar because I think it's just a great example of how adoptees can reframe their adoption story Uh, especially if they find it particularly hard to accept or particularly traumatic, you know, taking it from, oh, what does this story say about you to, oh, this this is how my imperfect mind is interpreting and reacting to the trauma I've experienced. It's just a much friendlier, kinder, uh, way to speak to yourself and to to have empathy for your own story uh, in a way that will allow you to process through all of those emotions. And again, open up places like the amygdala on the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus, which can be closed uh, when we do suffer trauma. So to go back to our initial question, if, if we use storytelling to heal trauma, uh, to explore our trauma, can we also use it to heal it? 
And I and the internet and Shankar Vedantam and a bunch of other psychologists say, yes, we can. In fact, the act of releasing stories can sometimes be enough in and of itself to bring peace and bring relief to whoever is telling the story, to whoever needs that relief and that peace. Uh, But going a step further, storytelling can also actually present us with an opportunity and allow us to do something that we cannot do in real life. And that is having the ability to rewrite the story. In the Hidden Brain episode, uh, Shankar talks to a psychologist named Bolton and talks about this idea more. She says that oftentimes to her clients, if they are struggling with a trauma or have experienced an early life trauma and are trying to get through it, uh, she recommends writing down the story and changing any character or place or experience or situation that you need to change in order to experience the story in a different way. So as an adoptee, if you have a traumatic, uh, more grim adoption story and you are struggling with rejection and there's a lot of baggage behind those feelings, then what Bolton would recommend you do is to write down your story and change specific elements to make it a happier, more positive associated story for you. Now, this is not to say that because we change our adoption story, it means our trauma is gone. That's definitely not what anyone, including myself, is saying, aside from the fact that that's not how trauma works. But what I think everyone is trying to say, including myself again, is to just practice and be try and be more open with your story with your own adoption story come on the podcast talk about it you know maybe start that conversation with a friend of yours who you think will understand um and you know the more that we put words whether they are verbal or like you know audible or written words if we start talking about our adoption stories more, then not only do we help, you know, educate people who are not adopted and who don't know what it's like, but we also start to open up these parts of ourselves, these locked up areas, whether they be in our brains, you know, like the amygdala, the hippocampus, and the prefrontal cortex, like I talked about at the beginning of this segment, or it could be something else. It could be, uh, your willingness to try something new or get involved in a new hobby that connects you to your culture more or anything like that. The more that we talk and share our stories on this subject, the more we ourselves are going to unlock and loosen up those areas of our brains where our trauma is just being held in the first place. So yeah, I hope you all really liked uh, this segment on today's episode I thought it'd be cool to just kind of give a little bit more background and go a a little deeper into why uh, people coming on here and sharing their adoption stories is so important not only to me and the world but to them to each individual as well 
And if you are someone who feels like they are struggling with early childhood trauma from your adoption or, you know, trauma from anything, really, but especially if you're adopted and struggling with trauma uh, related to that, then I would definitely recommend listening to the Hidden Brain episode, uh, looking up uh, Dr. Bolton as well. And if I can, I will link both of those in the show notes so that you can find them easily uh, down below. And yeah, I hope that everyone who's listening is inspired to tell more stories. And I'm sorry again if there are any super brain science people out there who are listening and probably cringing. But hey, you know, I did the best I could in the whole brain department. And I think I did okay. So (laughs) I'm going to leave it there. We will see you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of I'm Adopted, Now What? Hosted by me. Liza. If you liked what you heard, then please be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. Leave a good review and share this episode with a friend. If there's a topic you'd like to hear discussed on a later episode, DM me and tell me all about it. You can do that and find this podcast on Instagram and Facebook at imadopted.podcast. See you there.